They confessed sins that had been committed a thousand years before and had owned them as their own because they were no better or different than their fathers who refused to go in the land under Moses. They were no better than their fathers who rebelled under the judges. They were no better than their fathers who disobeyed the covenant under the kings. But then they had the word of God again. God had brought them back. God had rebuilt the wall. They confessed their sins and they wept and they had great joy and the joy of the Lord was their strength. And you would think that after this great revival that they had experienced, after the kindness that God had shown them in the face of their enemies, you would think that the people would endure and that finally they would turn and love the Lord their God. They wouldn't be like those in the past, all those dumb, sinful things that their forefathers did. They would turn from it. And now then everything would be fine. God had once again gathered them from the nations. He had taken them from captivity under the Assyrian. The king had given them his favor and sent Nehemiah back to rebuild the people. The priests had read and explained to them the word of God. They understood the meaning of it and they wept over it. And they praised the Lord. They had rejoiced. Surely now they would be devoted to God. In chapter 10, after hearing this law and having internalized it and wanted to obey the covenant which God had given them. They made some vows. They made vows before the Lord. And here are three main things that they vowed there as they heard the word of God taught to them and preached. They vowed that they would not give their daughters in marriage to surrounding peoples and they would not take their wives for their sons. They swore that they would not sell or buy grain or merchandise on the Sabbath day. They promised that they would tithe to the house of God for maintenance and to provide for the Levites. And one more thing that they promised was that they would give all their first fruits to the house of God and that they would not neglect the house of God. These are the things that they promised during that revival. So let's look at chapter 13. I'll begin reading in verse 1. At that time, the book of Moses was read publicly to the people. The command was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet Israelites with food and water. Again, that happened a thousand years ago before they were put out of the assembly. Instead, they hired Balaam against them to curse them, but our God turned the curse into a blessing. When they heard the law, they separated all those of mixed descent from Israel. Now before this, the priest, Eliashib, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was a relative of Tobiah. Tobiah was the one who kept trying to keep the, law, uh, the wall from being built. He was the enemy of Nehemiah and planned his harm. And Eliashib was his relative. And he prepared a room for him where they had previously stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, and the tents of grain, new wine, and fresh oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, along with the contributions for the priests. While all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king to, for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done on behalf of Tobiah by providing him a room in the courts of God's house. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I ordered that the rooms be purified, and I had the articles of the house of God restored there along with the grain offerings and frankincense. I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given, 
each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his own field. Therefore I rebuked the officials, saying, Why has the house of God been neglected? I gathered the Levites and singers together and stationed them at their posts. Then all Judah brought a tenth of the grain, new wine, and fresh oil into the storehouse. I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse the priest Shelemiah, the scribe Zadok, and Padiah of the Levites, with Hanan, the son of Zachor, the son of Mataniah, to assist them, because they were considered trustworthy. They were responsible for the distribution to their colleagues. Remember me for this, my God, and don't erase the deeds of faithful love I have done for the house of my God and for its services. At that time, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys along with wine, grapes, and figs. All of the goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I warned them against selling food on that day. The Tyrians Tyrians living there were importing fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil you're doing? Profaning the Sabbath day. Didn't our ancestors do the same so that God brought all this disaster on us and on this city? And now you are rekindling his anger against Israel by profaning the Sabbath. When the shadows began to fall on the city gates of Jerusalem just before the Sabbath, I gave orders that the city gates be closed and not be opened until after the Sabbath. I posted some of my men at the gate so that no one should enter during the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and those who sell all kinds of goods camped outside Jerusalem. But I warned them, why are you camping in front of the wall? If you do it again, I will use force against you. After that, they did not come again on the Sabbath. Then I instructed the Levites to purify themselves and guard the city gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, God, and look on me with compassion according to the abundance of your faithful love. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men, and pulled out their hair. That's pretty serious business. I forced them to take an oath before God and said, you must not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters as wives for your sons or yourselves. Didn't King Solomon of Israel sin in matters like this? There was no king like him among many nations. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Yet foreign women drew him into sin. Why then should we hear about you doing all these terrible and evil evil things, acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of the priest Eliashib, had become a son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. That, by the way, is Tobias' buddy. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, for defiling the priesthood as, as well as the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So I purified them from everything foreign and assigned specific duties to each of the priests and the Levites. I also arranged for the donation of wood at the appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, my God, with favor. The end. Interesting way to end the book of Nehemiah, isn't it? It seems that a better ending 
might have been right after the revival, right? We could have just shut this down to chapter 10. Everybody's happy, rejoicing. They're crying because their hearts are broken, because the law's been read to them, and they know they haven't kept the covenant of their God. And the priests run among them, and they say, look, stop crying. Stop crying. This is a day the Lord has brought us together. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. Don't cry. Feast. Don't be sad. Be joyous. Because God has brought us together again. The end. <laughs> that was been a good ending. So why does Nehemiah end this way? Why does he end with the failure of the people of God? The people here in this passage, in, in the book of Nehemiah, they were without excuse. There's no doubt about that. What the people began to do when Nehemiah left was sin, and they knew it. They had taken oaths in chapter 10 against the very things he outlines that they commit in chapter 13. The people heard the law of God. They were taught the word of God, but they did not reverence the law of God or his commands. And as their forefathers had done before, as Nehemiah said, they cast the law of God behind their backs. After this great revival, after the Lord had shown them great favor, they almost immediately fell into the same sins that they were exiled for in the first place. Within three chapters, the great hope that Israel would finally pursue the Lord is already falling apart. It is no different, it is no different than the people of Israel following Moses up out of Egypt, seeing his signs and wonders there, getting into the wilderness and not following the Lord's command to go into Israel and instead electing for themselves a leader to take them back to the slavery of Egypt because they missed the food. Exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing they did under Judges. Exactly the same thing that they did under the kings. The confessions which they confessed that their forefathers had done over a thousand years before, now they owned them as well. Their corporate confession was right. Though they had not done the exact thing and had not been present 1,000 years before, their hearts were idolatrous. They did not throw the gold into the fire as Aaron did and worship the golden calf, but they did have idols in their hearts. And this is exactly the same as it ever has been from the time of Israel until today, and even in this church, and even in my heart and yours. There is a reason that Paul writes in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Have sinned and continue to fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. We can own the sin of the idol worship in Israel because we have put things before our God as well. We have been unfaithful just as Israel was in the time of the judges and the kings and in the days of prophets that happened during Nehemiah's time and is happening during ours. The sins of Israel, the sins of the people of God, look at what they did. The things that they had vowed in chapter 10 here, it says they did not bring their tithes into the storehouse. The storehouse was empty. And, there, and because it was empty, they let an enemy of the house of God make a room there so he could live inside the Lord's temple. Tobiah lived in the storehouse of the temple. And because the people had not brought the tithes, the, Levi, the Levites lived on their tithes. This is how they supported themselves, so that they could perform the work of the Lord in the temple continually. 
And when the food was not bought and when the tithes were not given, they could not feed themselves. And so they left the temple and went back to their fields of farming. It's unreal. They worked on the Sabbath day and profaned it. They allowed commerce on the Sabbath day, the very thing they had swore not to do. And they were so stubborn about it that Nehemiah had to post guards at the gate and threaten to kill people if they came back on the Sabbath. That's hardcore. He said, why are you camping in front of the wall? wall? If you do it again, I will use force against you. And listen, he wasn't joking. He was a bad dude. When he found out people had been marrying foreign wives, he pulled their hair and beat them. <laughs> we do not employ that sort of church discipline here at New Covenant Baptist Church. We are much more gracious and gentle under this New Covenant. They broke the law of God, and they sinned against him. Now, here's the mistake that we do not need to make, and I think we make this mistake we read of the deeds of our fathers, and I'm counting these as our fathers, and we think, what a bunch of dummies they are. Why don't they trust the Lord? What is wrong with them? If you read it that way, that's terrible. Beware. They have given to us an example for our own eyes. What they've done, beware. It is a warning. These are our people. They are people and children of Abraham by faith alone. Their sins and mistakes are our sins and mistakes. Their faithlessness is our faithlessness. Their God who stays with them is the God who stays with us. It ends abruptly with disobedience. Why is all this happening and why do we end on such a low note? sad note. It is meant for us to reflect on this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he took a man from the dirt, and he fashioned him, and breathed breath of life into his nostrils. He put him in the garden. And every tree in the garden was good for food. You could not starve to death in the garden of Eden, even if you got lost, because every tree was good for food, except for one. Don't eat from that tree. And Eve, the woman who had been formed from Adam's side, they ate the fruit that was forbidden. And the Lord cast them out of the garden but did not abandon them. He gave them clothing and he stayed with them. He blessed them with children. And he promised to Eve that one day through her seed would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. Even though Adam and Eve, our forefather and foremother, sinned, God remained faithful to them. He remained faithful to them so they had Noah. He was faithful to Noah so that he survived. He made a name for his son Shem. Shem means name. Remember that back in Genesis chapter 11, God said, the people said, come let us gather together and make a name for ourselves. They said, let us make a Shem for ourselves. But God made a name not by building things and seeing how awesome they were by building towers into the heavens, but by selecting a person by grace through faith, Shem, who built the house through Shem. Through Shem comes Abraham, the forefather of all of Israel, who sinned terribly. Noah sinned, cursed his grandson in a drunken rage. His son Ham exposed his nakedness, and he said, Cursed be Canaan. 
Abraham sinned, gave his wife away twice. We've talked about that. Jacob sinned. He was a deceiver. He was a liar. He was a heel grabber. Stole his brother's birthright. Lied, deceived. When he goes before Pharaoh at about 137 years old, he said, my life has been long and full of sorrow. He spent his whole life deceiving and being deceived. Laban deceived him, gave him Leah instead of Rachel. His boys deceived him, told him his favorite son had been killed and torn apart by wild beasts. God was faithful to them through all of that. God brings them in through Moses. They rebel in the wilderness. They walk around for 40 years. But even while they're in exile in the wilderness for 40 years, he swears in his wrath they will not enter into his rest. Yet their clothes never wore out, their shoes never wore out, and their feet never swelled, and they never lacked food. Because even though God was angry at their disobedience, he never abandoned them. He did not abandon them under the time of the judges. And it was awful. Awful. Go read the book of Judges. It makes no sense it's so horrible. Read the story about the priest and his concubines. When they almost destroyed the entire house of Benjamin because of the sin which they committed. Oh, the time of Judges was horrible. Think the greatest judge you might think of is Samson, right? Man, that guy was something. It's a great story, though. You know, he was a Nazarite. They're never supposed to drink alcohol or cut their hair or touch unclean things. And there's a nice little parable in there. He finds a dead wife. Remember that? And a beehive is in its guts. And he goes and gets the honey out of the dead carcass, tries to get the sweet thing out of the unclean thing. It's a parable for his whole life. God was faithful. Stayed with them, even through Egypt. The time of the kings, every single one of the kings fell short of the glory of God and went astray. You can go through and you can read about all the kings, even the good ones, right? You're going through there, this is a great king, man. This guy's doing a great job. Josiah does a great job. This king does a good job. But at the end of his reign, I'll be like, this person followed the Lord with their whole heart, but they did not remove the high places, nor did they get rid of those uh, cult temples that people were worshiping at. David did a great job, except he sinned in numbering the people, and he stole the wife of Uriah the Hittite and murdered him. And yet God was with them through all of that. But finally their sins came so great, he scattered them to Babylon, he scattered them to Assyria, scattered them to the ends of the earth, and yet we have Daniel right in the midst of this captivity and the Lord is with him and faithful with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego and they bear witness in that place to the goodness of God. And after a time, here we are in Nehemiah, God is bringing them back together again from all the places which he had scattered them. His tender affections toward them had never wavered nor changed and he's bringing them back to this place. He's given them a great revival. They've rebuilt the wall and he says, listen, just keep my covenant. And they said, oh, we sure will. We promise this time we are going to keep your law. We are going to tithe. We're going to take care of the temple service. We are not going to trade on the Sabbath day unless they bring in those really tasty fish. Then we might buy those on the Sabbath. And, well, I have bought too many fish on the Sabbath, and I can't really afford to tithe. And so the next thing you know, the disobedience is there again. And that brings us to why this passage ends on a down note. You're playing a musical piece. Some of you know music better than me. There are certain chords, there are certain notes that just bug you every 
would like to have that much note as his hands made. So it's awesome. You end this book and it says, and they disobeyed God. Why have you done it? It's begging for resolution. What does happen and why would it end here? It's clear they failed. I'm going to tell you something else. If you read the Old Testament, you read the New Testament, even those apostles, failures, every one. We could list them. They list them for us. Why? The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3, 23. Even that begs the resolution. Don't just memorize Romans 3, 23. Read your day. Verse 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation. Propitiation is important. I'm going to stop right here. This says atoning sacrifice. I want to keep propitiation. <laughs> propitiation means to take away sin and to put in favor with it. So when God propitiates our sin through Christ, he doesn't just take away our sin. The death of Jesus does not just take away sin. It puts us in favor with God. Our sins are gone and we're in favor. It's both. In his blood, we have propitiation, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. He is both just and justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. If you go back and you read the Old Testament and you read the New Testament, what you will find is that every last person on the face of the earth is a miserable failure in keeping the law of God and loving him with all of their hearts, mind, soul, and strength. You can take out all the covenant of Moses. Don't actually do that. But what I'm saying is this. Jesus said the whole law can be summed up in these two. Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these two commands, all of the law and prophets hang. So if you don't have time this morning to go memorize all of Deuteronomy and Leviticus and the Ten Commandments and all those things, just remember those two. And here's the thing. We fail one and we fail two. And we will continue to do so until the day we die. And so the point here in Nehemiah is, oh no, is, it, is the point is not, oh no. Here is Israel at it again. Those fools. What we should read is we see there and as we mature, we say, there I am. There they go again. There I go again. Disobeying the law of God, not loving him with all of my heart and not loving my neighbor as myself. But the good news is, and the reason that Nehemiah ends this way is because there has to be something else. There must be. We cannot end this way. And it doesn't. It doesn't end this way. Because throughout all of this, God is continuing to be faithful to his people, not because they are faithful to him, but because he never abandons his people. And he is sending redemption. And it is not going to be by their works, but by their faith in Christ. That is the way of salvation. The reason that Nehemiah needs resolution is the same reason that Genesis needs resolution. Genesis is looking for the seed of the woman 
Abraham, of Jacob, of Judah, where is he? Where is the one to whom the obedience of the nations will belong? Where is the one that will bring in the times we can tether our donkey to the choicest vine and not worry about it? Where is he? And it's not King Saul. It's not King David. It's not Solomon. It's none of their sons. He hasn't come yet even in you and I. He wouldn't be born for many years later until the king, David's son, Jesus, comes on the scene. Nehemiah was unable to restore the people of Israel. He was unable to get them to understand the covenant. It's not his fault. He was unable to keep them, to keep it. He couldn't keep them in check. The law, they continued to rebel against it. Nehemiah was not infallible. He was waiting for them. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. He saves people like Elias did with Ruth. Who sinned and took her life and was still a child of God. Jesus Christ is the one that's prophesied to bring resolution to Israel. He is the note that we must end on. He is the one that we're looking for. See, the Bible says in Peter that when... The prophets of old, like Nehemiah, I know that it doesn't say he's a prophet here, but he is. I, I know some. When they're writing, when Isaiah is writing, when Jeremiah is writing, and they're seeing the people fail over and over again, they keep seeing it end on this note of failure. And they're asking, when will the dawn come? When will it change? When will the one come who crushes the head? So today, let's own these people. Now, our people. We're not better than them. We're not. We sin in like manner, every one of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You will never be justified by your own merit. Our own selfishness, our pride, is our undoing. But if we want to learn to live, we learn from the king who conquered sin and death. And he did live by dying for his people, by living a life of humility, by washing their feet, by healing the leper and going to the outcast, by healing the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, by saying to the man whose son continually threw himself into the fire and hurt himself and had a demon, and he said, do you believe that I can do this? believe I can do this. Can I heal this man? And the man said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's not us. That's who we are. That's the note of resolution that we long for. These people could not keep the Sabbath law of God. They should have. But they continued to sin and fall short of the glory of God. What comes after Romans 3.23 is very important. It is the gospel that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is Christ Jesus. That's our, their hope and ours. And it's offered to you again this morning. Listen, church, I know that you've sinned this week because I've spied on you on Facebook. <laughs> I actually don't even need that. 
Now you're thinking, what other ways do you have to spy on me? No, I just know you because we're my people and I knew you anyway. We've all sinned this week. And some of us have carried around the burden of our sin too long. And how do we overcome such pride? How do you overcome thinking that you're better than others? How do you overcome the idea that we are the exception to the rule? How do you, how do you humble yourself really? Here's what you do. You realize that the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, the one who made all things and for whom all things are made, that he allowed men to curse him with the breath that he gave them. The reason that they were breathing was because Jesus willed it. And they used their breath to curse him. And he turned it into Jesus. All the power and the might in the universe at his command, 10,000 angels could have descended on that place and wiped it out for good. And he prays for his Father to forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's how you become humble. You have never, never been insulted like Jesus. Never will be. Impossible. You have never been denigrated as Jesus was. You have never been humiliated as Christ was. And what does he do? He stoops to wear the crown of thorns and allows himself to be lifted on the cross and nailed there for people who fall short of the glory of God. And we love him for it. And that's how he changes us. John called himself disciples whom Jesus loved. And it's a continual verb. And he goes, you have to trust me. You don't have to trust me until I'm off. Here, look it up. He was the disciple whom Jesus kept loving. It's beautiful. It's the same for you. It's the same for Israel. These dirty lawbreakers. Do you think everybody in Israel went to hell? No. God was with these people. These sinful Sabbath breakers, these sinful oath breakers who wouldn't bring their tithe into the temple, who literally made Nehemiah, well, I was going to say pull his hair out, but literally made Nehemiah pull their hair out. God was still with them. There are no other kinds of people other than sinful ones. And God is gracious to them all. The failure of the people of God is the low note. The resolution is the faithfulness even today, even today, he is gathering his people from every tongue, from every tribe, from every nation, sinful lawbreakers, covenant breakers, oath breakers, everyone. He's bringing them into his kingdom despite them. And he will stay with them to the end. He will never leave them nor forsake them. And he's shown his truthfulness and his faithfulness over over and over again. These are your people. I know it sounds sad, but this is your God and he's good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your kindness and your goodness towards us. You have been faithful to our fathers, our sisters, our mothers, for generations. You were with Rachel 
She got mad at her husband because she didn't have any kids. Said, give me children or I die. You are with her to the grave. You have been with all of our people all along the way. And you are with us this morning. And Lord, we thank you for that. So I pray now this morning, if any of your children need to confess sin, need to come to you for healing, to know that you are still there, you are still their father, you still accept them and embrace them, no matter how many times they go into the foreign country and get in the mud, you're always there with a robe of righteousness and you sitting at death. If any of your children need to confess to their father, pray this morning you would give them the joy to do so. If there's someone here who has never been regenerated by the beautiful love of Christ, we pray this morning by the power of your spirit, you would press home the love of God for them. They will be awakened their eyes open, and they might see and taste that the Lord is good. Have mercy this morning, Lord. Have mercy on us. God, we praise you that we know this prayer is answered. You are with us, and you are good, even when we don't ask or look for it. Father, you are king. We thank you for your son. Be with us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.